This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Showtime series Billions introduced television's first non-binary gender-identifying character, Taylor Mason, about four years ago. Hello, I'm Taylor. My pronouns are they, theirs, and them. Gender-neutral pronouns are not new. Merriam-Webster added a definition for a singular they in 2019, and they was even the word of the year. Many federal courts have referred to parties and other people who appear before them by the pronouns that conform to their gender identities. But remarkably, some courts have not. Joining me is Holly Barker, Bloomberg Law senior legal reporter. The new pronouns may be confusing to some people who aren't familiar with them, so just give us a little bit of background. For cisgender individuals, I'm cisgender, so I was assigned female at birth, and I identify as a woman. Gender pronouns like he or she, you know, it's something we don't really think about. But for people who are transgender and or non-binary, in other words, if they have a gender identity that's different from the sex they were assigned at birth, pronouns do matter, and they might experience being misgendered regularly. And it's important because it's demoralizing for people and there's been research that, you know, it can have negative mental health consequences. So addressing people by the pronouns that are consistent with their gender identity is something that people need to do. In light of this, is there any new rule for federal courts about the use of gender pronouns? No, there's emphatically no rule or law requiring courts or counsel to refer to parties or other people who appear in court by the pronouns that conform to their gender identities, at least not yet. So federal courts have been handling it differently. Tell us about what happened in the Eastern District of Wisconsin in the Lammers case. So there, the attorneys for both parties had been using the pronouns they, them, and their to refer to the plaintiff Lammers, which was Lammers' stated preference. But the judge sort of basically decided it was too much trouble. So specifically, the court dropped a footnote explaining that the court didn't intend any disrespect to Lammers, but, and this is a quote, because the use of plural pronouns to refer to an individual is improper under standard rules of English grammar and is confusing to the reader, the courts will use the singular pronouns corresponding to his biological sex herein when necessary. But meanwhile, both the Chicago Manual of Style and the Associated Press Style book started recognizing singular use of they in certain circumstances in 2017. And then in 2019, Merriam-Webster added the definition of the singular they, and it was word of the year. So the judges view that this is somehow grammatically incorrect or hasn't worked its way in, in contemporary linguistics. It just isn't right. Sort of the signal it sends is that it doesn't matter because, you know, it might be a hassle and it might be stilted, but it's certainly possible to omit gender pronouns altogether when you're writing a legal opinion, almost especially because there are all sort of other terms you can use like plaintiff. So it's sort of not making the effort to accommodate somebody's wishes in that regard is dismissive and, I think, sort of harmful for parties. But it doesn't seem like the judge in that case was trying to be unkind. I agree. There was another case in the Fifth Circuit where the court sort of seemed to go out of its way to use a gendered pronoun, in part because the Fifth Circuit has written opinions involving transgendered parties and omitted pronouns altogether. But I think, you know, one of the reasons in there the court declined, despite a request from a party, to use the gender pronoun that 
conformed with their gender identity, and instead of a midwigman pronoun altogether, decided to use the male pronouns, which were the, the pronouns that had been assigned at birth to the party that wanted to be referred to using female pronouns only. And one of the reasons they cited was to avoid the appearance of bias. And unless they were trying to appear biased then, the embedded assumption is that the sort of neutral thing to do in that situation is to use the pronoun that was assigned at birth, and it's not. It's something that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has recognized as something that can equal harassment if it's done intentionally and repeatedly. So, so I think rather than being this sort of malignant or intentionally harmful thing that judges are sometimes doing, I think it's sort of a misunderstanding of how important it is not to of intentionally call someone by the wrong gender pronoun to misgender them. So the Fifth Circuit is considered the most conservative circuit in the country, but there are judges on that circuit who are handling it correctly, and there are judges that are handling it incorrectly. In U.S. v. Varner, which is the decision we've been talking about, Judge Dennis wrote a dissent, and in it, he used female pronouns to discuss Varner, which was Varner's preference. So in that respect, Dennis deviated from the majority, which used male pronouns. And other judges, like Judge Ho, for example, when he writes opinions, he omits pronouns altogether. Just It almost seems to be a matter of course. There's not very much consistency. Dennis seems to agree that it's important to call somebody by their preferred pronouns. Ho avoids the issue altogether. And Smith and Duncan, who were the two of the three judges on the panel in U.S. v. Barner, who joined in the majority, either misunderstands the premise or were being mean, and I would assume it was the former. You refer to it as, I think this is a good title, you refer to it as grammatical Switzerland, what Judge James Ho does. So uh, one of the Chicago manuals, of styles, general rules, sort of provide strategies for writing around gender pronouns altogether. It's like repeating the noun, if it's somebody's name, for example, um, or omitting the pronoun when it's not really necessary and, and often a pronoun sort of extraneous. And using an article instead of a pronoun. So instead of his constitutional right, it's the constitutional right, for example. Well, while I, in my view, it's preferable uh, to just use the pronouns people ask you to, or for some reason, somebody views that neutrality is necessary, there's a way to do it. Um, and it's certainly better than misgendering somebody. The Bostock case is a landmark Supreme Court case where the court held that Title VII protects employees against discrimination because they're gay or transgender. Did that decision have any influence on what's happening now in the courts with gender well, so- pronouns? interesting that you asked that because Derek Gorsuch, um, who wrote the majority opinion, used female pronouns to refer to a transgender woman, the pronoun that this transgender woman wanted him to use. You know, again, there's no rule and it wasn't, you know, something that that the court said in, in any way that other courts needed to do, but just in terms of modeling that behavior that they modeled. And you would think that that might influence lower courts. And the U.S. v. Varner uh, was in January 2020. So uh, Bostock was in, I believe, June, so later in that year. And most of the decisions I've seen since then either omit pronouns altogether or use the party's 
pronoun that's consistent with their gender identity, but still, you know, some courts don't, which takes us back to that Eastern District of Wisconsin decision uh, where the judge basically said, you know, it's too much, too much trouble to use they in the singular to refer this party despite their expression. So would you say the Bostock decision did seem to influence most courts? That's really hard to say. Uh, Most courts, I I do think, honor a party's request. uh, But, you know, we're still seeing instances where where it's not happening, uh, like in that Eastern District of Wisconsin case, uh, which is, you know, decided a little over a year after Bostock and where the court declined to use the party's requested pronouns. We're still seeing it. After Bostock, the... Equal Employment Opportunity Commission released new guidance. Just explain that. So the agency commemorated the one-year anniversary of Bostock in June by releasing guidance. So so Bostock, just by way of a reminder, held for the first time that Title VII applies to discrimination against homosexual and transgendered people. Uh, so there, you know, that being sort of a new principle, there wasn't a ton of guidance out about it yet. Um, so the EEOC, to address that in June, reiterated, among other things, that unlawful harassment can include intentionally calling someone uh, by the wrong pronoun. And they weren't, they're not referring to sort of accidental or unintentionally doing it. They're, they're talking about repeated and, and, and intentional uh, misgendering. So it's something that they've recognized can constitute harassment. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Holly. That's Holly Barker, Bloomberg Law Senior Legal Reporter. President Joe Biden has selected Elizabeth Prelogger to become the next Solicitor General of the United States. Prelogger is a veteran appellate lawyer who's been acting Solicitor General since January. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court Reporter. So tell us about the importance of the role of the Solicitor General. Well, sure. So the Solicitor General, although it's an office that really is sort of unknown outside of elite appellate circles, it's actually the number four position within the DOJ. And so not only is it the federal government's top lawyer at the Supreme Court, but it really oversees all of the federal appellate litigation and really determines which cases the federal government is going to appeal up Uh, to the appellate courts, and perhaps eventually to the Supreme Court. So it's a very powerful office, uh, and certainly one that I'm surprised to see having not been filled for so long. Is this the longest that the Solicitor General's spot has been left open with an acting Solicitor General? Certainly it's the longest in modern times and has really been unprecedented in the last several decades. Listeners may remember that under the Trump administration, there was some grumbling that it was taking that administration quite a long time to fill the Solicitor General spot as well. But even then, we had a nominee in early March. And so not having a nominee until August is really quite interesting. And the Solicitor General, that position has to be confirmed by the Senate. That's right. This is one that has to be confirmed by the Senate. So even though the White House announced its intention to have Prelogger be the nominee, we still don't have word on when her confirmation hearings might be. Although, you know, the office is in pretty good hands until that time. There are a lot of career deputies there that have been there some since the 70s and 90s. So there's a lot of institutional knowledge why we wait to see whether or not Prelogger is going to be confirmed. So tell us about Elizabeth Prelogger. 
sure. Well, she's a longtime DOJ attorney. She had previously been an assistant in the Solicitor General's office and has argued some cases uh, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And then she was briefly detailed to the Mueller investigation, investigating potential Russian interference in the 2016 election. That's likely because she speaks fluent Russian. After that and before she went into the DOJ, she was in private practice. But she is one of the few female attorneys who has argued regularly in front of the Supreme Court. And she's done so on behalf of the Biden administration a couple of times since taking on the acting SG role in in late January. And she clerked for Merrick Garland and also for the first female solicitor general, who is now a Supreme Court justice, Elena Kagan. That's right. So she has a pretty impressive background with regard to clerkships. Not only did she clerk for now Attorney General Merrick Garland, which I can't help but think helped her prospects (laughs) of getting the Solicitor General nod, but she also clerked for two Supreme Court justices, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then Elena Kagan. And you mentioned that Elena Kagan was the first female Solicitor General and Elizabeth Perlager would be just the second. She seems to have a lot of experience. She seems top-notch. Why was there a delay in naming her as a nominee? Well, we've heard from sources, you know, former individuals in the Solicitor General's office that there was some haggling between the White House and the Department of Justice. As I mentioned, Prelogger probably got some backing from Merrick Garland, um, who has championed her career for a very long time. But the White House has really placed an emphasis on diversity, both racially and with professional experience. And we've been hearing that the White House was looking for either an attorney of color to lead the office or for somebody with criminal defense background. And there's a lot of pressure on the White House to kind of reverse the traditional pipeline that we see in these high up DOJ positions that really rely on prosecutors. And we really haven't seen that happen yet. So the delay in naming a nominee, as you write, appears to have worked in her favor? Well, that's right, because, you know, as I said, she has been doing this job on an acting basis um, for an unprecedented amount of time. We've seen her really take on some of the hardest jobs that a solicitor general has to do, that is taking over from a previous administration and deciding when the solicitor general's office is going to change positions uh, from a previous administration. As you can imagine, there were some differences in the way of thinking about certain cases between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. You know, and Elizabeth Prologer was at the front of deciding whether or not the federal government should you know, do a 180 or whether or not they should stick the course and maybe not take a hit to their institutional reputation. So she has less senior federal government experience than prior solicitor generals. Does that really make a difference? Well, you know, I guess we'll have to see whether or not it's something that comes up in her confirmation hearing. You know, the solicitor general's office has often been used as a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. We've already mentioned Elena Kagan, but of course, you know, Thurgood Marshall was another really high-profile solicitor general who eventually got the nod to be on the Supreme Court. I think this is something that's changing in the dynamic of the office. Going back to George Bush's solicitor general, Robert Bork, we actually saw him step down from the D.C. Circuit to take on the solicitor general role of judgeship that's really considered to be on the second most important court of the country. Um, So now we see, particularly with President Trump's nominee, that those kinds of credentials are not being required, and we'll see if that's something that continues with Prologger and beyond. So, Kimberly, the White House had to make a decision because of a 1998 law. Tell us about that law. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So this is a law that was intended to really prevent end runs around the Senate's advice and consent role where, you know, presidents would just name someone an acting role and leave them there for years, perhaps, you know, many years spanning their whole administration. And so under this law, the DOJ has only so long that it can have somebody work on an acting basis before, you know, they need to have somebody up for nomination. And that timeline runs out in November. Now, once Elizabeth Prologer is formally nominated and her nomination is sent to the Senate, that timeline will move beyond. But it hasn't really happened that the DOJ has been coming up on a timeline like this. As we've talked, this has really been an unprecedented delay. Did the Biden administration offer the job to California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger? Well, that's something that we heard very early in the process, uh, sometime in January, that not only did the White House um, offer the, her the nomination once, but twice, and she declined. You know, that, that's something, you know, that isn't out of the realm to think that someone would step down from a prestigious place like a justice on the California Supreme Court, because, as I mentioned, you know, this is a stepping stone to the Supreme Court, and Leandra Kruger is one of the leading candidates, one of the few leading candidates um, for the next opening on the Supreme Court. As we've talked about before, the Solicitor General's office has faced criticism for its lack of gender diversity. The Solicitor General's office put forward 61-minute argument in 58 cases compared with 10 women. Are they working on gender diversity with Prelogger there now? That's something that, you know, we've heard from the Biden administration that they do want to have more diversity. You know, not only is the the number from last term concerning, but it's even more concerning because it's really seen as a driver of the total imbalance between men and female attorneys arguing at the Supreme Court. That's really because the Solicitor General's office participates in so many of these oral arguments. They are in approximately two-thirds of these cases. So if you have an SG's office that isn't really well-balanced and isn't diverse, you're not going to have, you know, attorneys as a whole who are representatives um, of the country who are arguing at the court. There's also a problem with racial diversity as well. Right, and that's probably an even bigger uh, problem for the Solicitor General's office than than the gender diversity. Uh, and really diversity on so many levels is a problem in the office, you know, beyond just racial and gender diversity. There really is just one kind of typical professional pipeline, uh, you know, that we see traditionally to uh, the Solicitor General's office. That is, you know, a Supreme Court clerkship, a prestigious job in, you know, an appellate shop in Washington. And then you know, some kind of prosecutor role or siding with the federal government. And so that's something that Prologger is not going to offer a lot of diversity and that the Biden administration will continue to be pressed on. This is not a job, you know, right out of law school. These are very experienced attorneys who are going for these jobs. That's right. These are typically people who have, you know, several years um, practicing in private practice that, you know, that's on top of these prestigious clerkships. You know, Prey Lager is certainly not out of bounds with having, you know, clerks for Merrick Garland and then two Supreme Court justices. So it's definitely not something, an entry-level position, but they're really sought-out positions within the federal government uh, that, you know, attorneys generally stay in for about five years before, you know, moving out and allowing others to step into that prestigious role. And how big is the office? How many attorneys? 
Well, there's been some movement in the number of attorneys. There's approximately 20 uh, to 23 attorneys uh, in the office, and those split between kind of temporary positions, these five-year positions, to career positions. I mentioned, you know, one of the deputies has been there since the 1970s, um, and then uh, also balanced with some political appointees. So not only is the Solicitor General a political appointee, but also their principal deputy, uh, which is the role that Prologger is serving in now. So we're getting closer, not quite there yet, to the first Monday in October. Let's talk about some of the high-profile cases, starting with the abortion case. Right. This, uh, you know, this next term that's coming up is really going to be uh, quite a test for, you know, the Supreme Court. This abortion case is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, and it's a challenge to Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which bans abortion after 15 weeks. Now, the question formally presented to the justices here is about so-called pre-viability abortions, but the briefs from the party and from the supporting briefs from amicus all really go after Roe versus Wade and the right to have an abortion at all. Abortion remains one of the most contentious issues in this country. Another contentious issue is Second Amendment rights. Tell us about that case. That's right. The case uh, the Supreme Court will also take up uh, the, this very contentious issue in New York State rifle, rifle versus and sorry. The Supreme Court will also take up this issue in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. Now, this is a challenge to New York's concealed carry permit process, and the question is really whether state legislatures can place limits um, on a concealed carry permit or whether the Second Amendment uh, limits what the state legislatures can do. And in particular, New York provides local authorities with quite a bit of discretion uh, when deciding whether or not to grant these permits. And that is what in the individuals here are challenging, that that kind of discretion violates the Constitution. And you have several justices on the Supreme Court, conservative justices, who have wanted to take up a Second Amendment case because they haven't taken up one in about a decade. Right. We have seen kind of a, a minority of the conservative justices for a long time saying that, you know, there are questions that are left open uh, since the Supreme Court really heard one of its landmark cases, Heller, um, deciding some Second Amendment issues and that, you know, federal lower federal courts you know, really need guidance on these issues. But we've seen a majority of the justices saying that they didn't want to tackle the issue. They've been really denying cases that deal with these same issues uh, for almost a decade. And it wasn't until we saw, you know, Justice Barrett come into the picture that we saw one of these cases actually get granted at the Supreme Court. So with these two issues alone, it seems like next term is going to be a lot more controversial than this term was. That's right. You know, if you look back at this last term, you kind of saw an effort by at least some of the justices to moderate some of the rulings, to kind of not go as far as conservatives may have wanted them to go. But these cases uh, are going to really be where the rubber meets the road. Are we going to see the conservative justices really moderate and kind of try to uphold precedent, or are we going to see them go big uh, on these two very controversial issues? Now, the Marathon Bomber case, that's coming before the Supreme Court. What's the issue there? 
Right. So that is a, a really interesting case because, uh, you know, it is about these capital sentences that Johar Sarnayev, uh actually got for his participation in the 2013 marathon bombing. But it doesn't actually deal with his guilt or innocence. Instead, the justices are going to look at some technical issues uh, related to, you know, jury selection in the case and evidence that was used during the sentencing phase. But this is a really interesting case for the Solicitor General, uh, you know, that being the topic that we started off with, in that, you know, the Biden administration or then-candidate Biden really campaigned against the death penalty. And here we see them, in this case, just continuing the Trump administration's arguments that the death penalty should be reinstated and used here. There are, there are some couple of really interesting cases involving state secrets. That's right. And this is one, uh, you know, these are some cases that I was really surprised that there wasn't more of a push for the Biden administration to have a Senate-confirmed solicitor general um, by the time that these cases were argued, because they are so integral uh, to the federal government's uh, litigation. But, you know, these two cases that deal with the state secrets privilege, and this is the idea that if the federal government is required to turn over certain information and litigation that it could be harmful to national defense. Now, these cases really come up in the context of the war on terror, but the United States has been inserting state privileges back since 1953. They've been used in cases, you know, as wide-ranging as discrimination suits, things on wiretapping of U.S. citizens, and even patent disputes. So it definitely has, you know, implications beyond the war on terror. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.